I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. If you're in the business, you start to kind of lose sight of some of these fringe things that are incredibly important to the success and the viability of your concept. If you're on the business, then you tend to see a little bit more from that 30,000 view and you see some of this stuff on the fringe that might be potential problems before they become big problems that take a lot of energy and time to fix. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. How does a restaurant stay relevant for a decade? And if that feels impossible, imagine if that restaurant survived a century. Today we chat with Mark Echevarria, a fourth generation restaurateur of the famous Musso and Frank Grill on Hollywood Boulevard. We'll talk about what it took to survive the last hundred years and how they intend to thrive for the next hundred. It really wasn't on my radar until, oh, the latter part of 2009. I'll give you a little quick kind of history of sort of the family ownership of it. And my great-grandfather bought the restaurant in 1927 with his business partner in a 50-50 partnership. And so our side of the family owned 50%, and then the Karasini side of the family owned 50% until 2009, when our side of the family bought out the Karasini side of the family. So then it's all in, in 100%. Well, all those years when it was 50-50, it was really difficult to have any sort of a majority owner's stake in it. And there was never really any kind of inclination that the other family would want one of our family members to be permanently involved in running the day-to-day. And so it just never really kind of seemed like it was going to happen until that move was made and, and we bought out the other side. And then the third generation, my parents, my two sets of aunts and uncles, They already were deep into their own careers and everything. Nobody could drop what they were doing to come in and run the day-to-day operations. So they kind of looked at the fourth generation. And a lot of my generation were either still in school or they had their careers that were just starting completely different than restaurants. I was running fly fishing lodges in Alaska and running mountain operations for a ski resort in Lake Tahoe. And so they kind of looked at me and said, well, you've got operational experience and you went to school for business, so you're it. <laughs> and so I moved from Tahoe down to Hollywood. That's crazy. In a lot of these businesses, you know, I spoke with, I'm sure you guys probably know each other. I spoke with the team over at Lowry's as well. That's a very different dynamic than yours because he grew up in the restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I understand why he wants to do it because he was exposed to it at such a young age. Who, on the other hand, sir, escaped the abyss and then got sucked back in? (laughs) You know, it was 
even though I actually grew up in Northern California and when my grandmother was running the restaurant, my mom would bring my sister and I down at least once a month to see my grandmother and we'd always be in the restaurant. I knew a lot of the team that was working here since I was a little tiny kid. And so I was very, very well familiar with the restaurant. And in my teens, I really started to get a feel for kind of how important this restaurant is for Hollywood. And so in 2009, when the family asked if I would be interested in running it. It was an absolute honor and took like three seconds to say, yeah, of course. Talk to me about expectation going into the role versus reality. The restaurant was in a much different place than it is right now. And it had started to slip a little bit as far as quality goes. The service was always pretty crisp. There were definitely some efficiencies that we could kind of target in getting a little bit better at some of the service. But for the most part, the guys that were working here were long time, tenured, they were seasoned, they knew what they were doing. Food quality, like I said, kind of was slipping a little bit. The business side of the restaurant, just how to manage the the economics of running the restaurant were really hurting. There was no serious ownership presence in the restaurant from about 2000 until 2009. And that's really kind of what started that whole movement of us buying the other family out was like, hey, something's got to happen here. Otherwise, this legend might not be around for much longer and we need to do something. And that other family, it was an amicable sale. We reached an agreement and they were willing to sell it to us. And so the expectation for me moving in from the family was, let's just really identify where we need to improve, what help we need. Let's start picking off that low-hanging fruit and just start moving and getting things back onto a positive slide. And it took a little while to do all that and to identify it. And really, it took a while for me to fully understand the restaurant business. I got a major in international business and and I know business. I was running operations and running the businesses for those operations. So I I had an idea of how to kind of pick through that P&L and really identify areas that need attention. But then as far as the restaurant goes, well, okay, this might need attention. What do I do? <laughs> you know, right? And it really took just having wide eyes for everything, reading every book I could get on restaurants, having an open ear to any conversation that I could be involved in with restaurants, and learning a lot from the team that was here, who, like I said earlier, was a really tenured, seasoned team. Learning a lot from them, and then finding my own path and figuring out, okay. I got the knowledge. Now let's really kind of get to business. You were in an interesting place that I think a lot of restaurateurs find themselves, right? I've been doing this for a number of years, not really making any money doing it. It seems like a lot's wrong, but I don't really know where to start to find out. And I was talking with another restaurateur earlier today, and like his to-do list is dozens and dozens and dozens of things, all which kind of seem equally important. So when you come into something that has so many variables, so many simultaneous issues, and it's been around for, at that point, almost 90 years, how did you triage? How did you prioritize where to focus your attention first? It was really identifying the low-hanging fruit, the easy stuff to fix first, not putting too many things on the plate at once. We knew that we needed to fix A through Z, but let's focus on A through C first and not try to take on too much. And so 
for us, it was, okay, let's get the food quality back in place. When the restaurant financially was kind of hurting before 2009, the people who were running the kitchen at the time kind of sacrificed the quality of ingredient in order to maintain some cash flow. And that's obviously for restaurants, not the way that you do it. And so we identified the food quality being the absolute number one priority. That was A. And we went out on the hunt for an executive chef that could take over that kitchen and really, whether it was retrain some of the guys back there on how to handle the ingredients a little bit better, how to bring some of these old recipes from like the 1920s to a modern day palate. And so that was the first thing that we did was, okay, we need that leader in the kitchen. Let's go find him. And then I was able to really start kind of tackling some of the business and the financial side of things simultaneous to that. And then once we, we got that behind us, then it was on to, to C and D and E and F and, and onward. And it's still, I mean, it's like the alphabet on that one never ends. It's always yeah. going. You know? <laughs> Am I a double A, double B at this exactly. point? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about that executive chef position, because I think a lot of folks have found themselves in the same position, myself included. And what I did consistently was underspend on that position, you know, not realizing that if you pay more than you can afford, typically, typically, that person will make you money, not cost you money. Did you find yourself in a similar position? Absolutely. And we really had to, as a family, kind of come to the realization that, okay, you know, e even though the restaurant's losing money, we got to invest in this position. And that's kind of a hard decision to make, you know, as, is. as restaurant is. owners, it really is difficult to say, there's not a whole lot flowing to the bank account right now, but I'm going to commit to this kind of a salary. And you're absolutely right. It is worth it. You really don't want to sell yourself short on that kind of a position. On your path to leadership, did mentorship play a role? How did, did you learn to be the kind of restaurateur that you are today? I got really lucky and got involved with a gentleman out of Chicago who is a really prominent restaurateur out there. I, he was really instrumental on kind of teaching me sort of the really nitty gritty details of, of how to run a restaurant. And he's got an affinity for old restaurants and he knew that this, that Musso's was going through a little bit of a hard time, especially with a family buying another family out. And, and he just kind of reached out and said, hey, do you, would you like some help? And he really took me under his wing. And I was very, very grateful for that. And uh, we continue to be just really, really good friends. We now are kind of more of a collaborative relationship. And so I got some very in-depth knowledge on how to proceed and some good advice. The whole family got some really good advice on, from him on how to proceed with that. So as far as consultation goes, it's you got to put your ego aside a little bit too and say, hey, maybe I should look for someone to just kind of see things with a different lens. And that can help out as well. How do you learn today? What resources? Is it podcasts? Is it articles? Is it books? I do a lot of reading. I talk with a lot of restaurateurs. I visit a lot of restaurants. I just really like the industry. I love the industry in general. I love this restaurant. So any chance that I can be to, to be in there and, and involved with it, whether it's just watching or talking, being a part of discussions, panels, that kind of thing, I'm all about it. Isn't it interesting? I would argue, and I've read a lot of books, listened to a lot of podcasts, talked to a lot of other restaurateurs. But the best education that I've gotten as a restaurateur is by dining. And it was the hardest thing for me to convince myself to do because one, 
It wasn't cheap. And two, the time that I was spending in these amazing restaurants was time I would typically spend in my own. Absolutely. I mean, you can learn so much from just watching multiple different operations. And it's not like you're stealing any ideas or anything. You're just observing and then sort of taking these ideas and twisting them and making them your own, cultivating them into something that would be consistent with your concept and your philosophy and how you run your restaurant. So just having eyes out there is great. And I welcome other restaurateurs to come to our restaurant and say, and see how we do things. It's not that how we do things is the best and you should do it. Not at all. But you might be able to pick one little thing here, one little thing there, and then sort of cultivate it to be your own. And we encourage that. And I love doing it to other restaurants. So when you take over, the restaurant's been around almost 90 years. Obviously, to survive 90 years, you have to be doing something right. So you step into the role. I'm sure you audited for some time before you stepped into the role. What did you think they were doing right? When you look back on, let's say, that first 90 years, what key decisions did they make? What choices did they make that you feel like led to the success of the brand? So a couple of things that they were clearly doing right. One was the development of the menu. And I'll touch on that. That's a little bit longer of an explanation. The other thing that was very apparent from the absolute beginning was how we build relationships with those that come in and dine with us. It's somewhat of a misnomer since we're right on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood that we're a tourist restaurant. We're so far from it. We're probably 90 to 95% regular Angelino repeat clientele. And we developed those relationships throughout the decades. And it's not uncommon to walk through the dining room and see four generations sitting at a booth and just having goosebumps in the hairs, you know, because I love seeing that. And, and it's developing those relationships. I learned that from the team really, really quick. And so going back to the menu, because that is a little bit longer of, of an explanation. Back in the 20s, in the early 20s, the restaurant opened in 1919, but in 1922, the then owner, Frank Toulet, who's the Frank part of Mousson Frank, he brought in a French trained chef named Chef Jean Roux. And Roux was really, really bright. And he was the chef until 1976. And, and also, I just kind of want to preface all this with, I've got corporate minutes that go back to 1927. And so wow. a lot of this information was in those corporate minutes. And that was another really instrumental tool in me kind of catching myself up with just Musso history. It was really clear to Chef Rue that Hollywood was kind of this melting pot of cultures from all over the globe coming into Hollywood to be a part of this new thing called the film industry. And so he started to really develop a menu and develop recipes that catered to all those different cultures from around the world. And so that he wanted to make a place where anybody, no matter where they were from, could come, find something that, that was close to their cultural cuisine and feel at home. And I think that was one of the first instrumental keys on why this restaurant started to become such a bedrock of Hollywood. And over the years, you know, some of those dishes dropped off and some other ones came on, but we still currently have quite a few dishes that are from the original 1922 recipes of Chef Roux. And I think that was an important part of our history, just realizing that Hollywood is this melting pot and that you really have to cater to that. And we did. And it hasn't failed us yet. 
Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help you take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. You know, I spent a lot of time in Hollywood. So in the early 2000s, I ran nightclubs in Hollywood. I then opened my own bar right down the street from me in the Jane's House Courtyard in 2010 and owned that for 11 years. And so I, like you, sat with a front row seat watching Hollywood change and evolve. And the Hollywood of 2004, certainly not the Hollywood of 2010, certainly not the Hollywood of today. It's changed and evolved. Like you, I see a lot of the same things. I lived in Hollywood for a long time as a young man living it up. And during that time, what I saw when I looked at Hollywood was not glamour in film. I saw a densely populated residential area in a densely populated residential area that needed to be serviced. And so a lot of the people listening live in New York, they live in Miami, they live in Southern California, they live in tourist destinations. In the middle of a tourist destination, how do you appeal to the residents of the area? It goes back to those relationships. Our cuisine is a very comfortable, homey kind of cuisine. We're not the artisan plate, and there's a place for that. I'm not knocking that at all. We just aren't that. And so people can come here and get that really homey, comfortable meal. But then they also, the minute they walk in the door, we remember them. We know their name. We know what they drink. And it's those lessons from the generations who served here in the past that we have learned and that we carry forward. And people really like that. You know, they like to come to a place where they feel it's like the old cheers thing, right? Where they know your name and they know what you drink. And we do that really well. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we cater to the local Angelino. I think the other reason is that we've always stayed true to what we do. We've never tried to be anything different than what we are. And I think people respect that kind of approach and integrity to the concept. And they recognize that and they appreciate it. Well, and the loyalty shines through. The last report that I saw showed that patrons had donated over $100,000 to the restaurant in support of you, your family, your team, just helping you survive the pandemic. Yeah, that was the uh, the Musso Employee Relief Fund. 100% of those funds went to the employees to get them through or to help them offset the cost of living when the restaurant was totally shut down. And that was insanely heartwarming to see that kind of support from our clientele that, you know, they've developed relationships with these people here and for them to just come out and say, hey, we're here to support you. That was unbelievably heartwarming. And it'll still tear up everybody on the floor and in the kitchen when you talk about that kind of a support. The guys here just, they get dirty about it. Not to take it to a marketing perspective, but when I read that, my first thought was, oh, wow, they have an audience. 
Like there's a difference between having a customer base and having an audience. With an audience, you have their email address, you have their phone number, they follow you on social media, they actively engage with you. And in order for you to start that fund and have it funded so quickly and so voraciously, you do have an audience. And I think that there were so many hurdles for so many restaurateurs who thought they owned their customer because they knew their face, they knew their first name, they knew what they liked to eat, but they didn't have any of that customer's data, right? They hadn't, they hadn't built a way to engage with that customer outside of the four walls of the restaurant. And you obviously had. So can you talk to me about what that looks like and how you guys have been able to leverage it? Yeah. We do keep a database of all contact information, at least on reservations, certainly, and those that book with us directly. We do get contact information. So we do have quite extensive list of those that have come in and dined with us. But I think that it's not exploiting that is what sort of made them listen to us. It was kind of during COVID, I was sending out emails to our whole database just as updates, but we don't exploit the data. What we do is develop that relationship on premise. And so once that relationship in person is developed, then when they see a communication come in from you digitally or whatever, they tend to kind of open their eyes a little bit and click on it. You know, most of us come up through the industry being bussers, then bartenders, then lead bartenders, then floor managers. And then eventually you work your way up to GM. Maybe one day you're lucky enough, you find financing. And the next thing you know, you're a restaurateur. But you don't function as a restaurateur. You function as a general manager because that's all you've ever been. And you spend all of your time working in the business, not on the business. And because of the way you came into Musso and Frank's, you had the opportunity to step into a restaurateur roll off the bat. And what would be helpful for me, and I'm sure the folks listening is, if you tell us, like, what does a restaurateur do? Like, what do you do every day to make your business better? I think you hit it on the head where you say, are you going to be on the business or in the business? And I think a restaurateur, an owner has to really be on the business. If you're in the business, you start to kind of lose sight of some of these fringe things that are incredibly important to the success and the viability of your concept. If you're on the business, then you tend to see a little bit more from that 30,000 view and you see some of this stuff on the fringe that might be potential problems before they become big problems that take a lot of energy and time to fix food costs and that kind of thing. You get to see this a little bit more. But in order to do that, and this goes back to our very first discussion on Executive Chef, in order to be on the business, you've got to have those people in those leadership roles that, one, you can not, not only trust, but that are you know, incredibly competent. And so I go back to the saying of hire somebody who's smarter than you, who can do the job better than you, and have no ego about it. <laughs> and so I'm not a cook. I'm not going to pretend to be a cook. I love food. but the executive chef is the executive chef for a reason, and I'm not it. And so let's hire the best I can for this concept as far as the executive chef goes. And the general manager, same thing. I'm not a wine guy. I used to love wine. I quit drinking a little while ago, but I used to love wine. <laughs> but our general manager, he's the wine director, and he's phenomenal at it. I can't do that. I would not be able to take the wine program to that kind of a level as he has. But being on the business and seeing how all this stuff is developing and being involved in all of it, I'm not saying you're not involved. You're involved in every step of the way, but you just have 
those that are doing the day-to-day work and all those little departments and you're overseeing from the top. And it helps to keep an eye on all that fringe stuff that can be potential problems. You did something recently that I thought was super smart, and it kind of speaks to that 30,000-foot view. You opened a series of private dining rooms within the restaurant, which is like the first major renovation since like the 1950s. It seemed really smart to me. Before I talk about why I think you did it, why don't you tell me why you did it? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. It goes back to listening to your client base. And the process for opening these private dining rooms started in 2015. The idea started well before that. And we were listening to our guests and our guests were saying kind of one or two things. They were saying, hey, we want to have large parties. Do you have any private space? Of course, we would say, well, no, we don't, but we can accommodate parties up to 40 or 50 in our existing dining room. And they said, well, you know, it's uh, I've got my grandmother and she's celebrating her 90th birthday and we need somewhere quiet. We weren't able to provide that service for them. And then we had people on the other side of the spectrum right? The three and four tops that were next to large parties in the main dining room and saying, hey, it's way too loud. Can you ask them to be quiet? (laughs) And we didn't have any space to put those parties, large parties, so that the threes and the fours and the fives in the existing dining room could have a pleasurable experience as well. And so getting it from both ends like that, we were, it was pretty quick for us to say, okay, we need to start thinking about how we can do this. And then it really came down to How do you design a space so versatile to what was being asked of you? And we do parties from, I'm talking pre-private dining rooms. We were doing parties from eight tops to 300 and anything in between. And so we realized we needed to create a space that was going to be as versatile as the requests that were coming in. And so it took a little while to kind of figure that out with the limited space that we have. And we're really excited. We opened them finally in, in November. You know, it was a little tricky to get things through the city. I'm sure you and, and some of your, your listeners know that <laughs> getting any construction through LA is a bit of a challenge, but we made it through and uh, we opened the private dining rooms and they're going gangbusters. It's, uh, it's really nice to see. So what I saw when I looked at it was I saw another revenue stream in my own fine dining restaurant. We wrung our hands, you know, how are we going to bring in an extra million dollars? How are we going to get busier on a Monday? How are we going to do all of this? And after trying everything, eventually we just figured out it was like events. That's really what it was. And that we could bring in way more money all at once at a better Better margin, margin, right? It's massive. It's absolutely massive. I had a 6,000 square foot, two-story restaurant. And if I could do it all over again, I would have just chopped up the top into like three or four different PDRs. Neil Frazier did it over at Redbird and he makes bank because of it. It is a massive opportunity, especially being located in Los Angeles. Everybody's looking for a place to book a party. Absolutely. And there really wasn't much private dining space in Hollywood outside of the hotels. There really wasn't. And so we wanted to capitalize on that. And you're absolutely right. The desire to have large parties and have a specific space for those large parties is it's in high demand and even more so after COVID. And our pro forma for this space was to add about 15 to 20%. And it's hitting that target. So we're That's really amazing. That's amazing. And we used to be open for lunch before COVID. Right. We were open from 11 to 11, Tuesday through Sunday. After COVID, we decided let's start with just dinner service again. And we haven't opened up for lunch yet for reasons that we can get into if you want, you know, down the road. But 
we haven't. We've only been open for dinner service, but with the added revenue of the, the private dining space, we're actually doing more than we were dollar-wise prior to COVID. So even without lunch, but adding private dining rooms, we're still hitting 15 to 20%. Uh, Hit a so better margin because there were several lunches that weren't busy, right? That you lost money on. Absolutely. And, Your check average and, is lower. And you know, so, yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer for us in that regard. It's, it's great. Do you think you'll open for lunch again? You know, there's going to be a number of factors that have to kind of come in line before we look at it hard. Probably won't look at it hard until the end of quarter three, maybe beginning of quarter four. But more businesses have to bring offices back to Hollywood. Although the studios are down on Sunset, Viacom, Netflix, Paramount, all those. And that's really kind of what fed us our lunch service. So we got to have more of that come back with Netflix kind of going through what they're going through. I'm not sure they're too eager to or have people to bring back in Hollywood. So that's a little bit of a quirky factor there. We also want to see some stability in the cost of goods sold. It's just way too volatile right now to open up another day park when you're doing just fine with one day park. Why complicate things even more so with trying to squeeze it out and open up for lunch? The, the demand is getting there, I think. I do get a lot of requests for, hey, when are you guys going to open for lunch again? When are you going to open for lunch again? And I want to, but it's just not quite the right time. Like, I want to make people happy, but like, if I could run a restaurant one day a week, five hours a day and make my nut, like, I'd feel really good about that. Instead of trying to figure out how to get busier on a Monday, if your market doesn't want you to be open on Monday, if there's no interest, there's power in closing and pushing what little volume there is to the other days of the week, right? And it's the same with services like lunch and dinner. Oh, certainly. Yeah. If you do open for lunch, you run the risk of cannibalizing dinner service for a lower check average. That certainly is in the thought process there. What's different about us is before COVID hit, we were really seeing for about a year, we were seeing a strong resurgence of the martini lunch. Mm. And that's what Musso's was always kind of known for. And lunch was profitable and it was busy. You know, we would do one turn, we would do about 210 for lunch. That's not bad. Yeah. When you're looking at, you know, on a day-to-day basis and that resurgence of that martini lunch is something that I was really excited to see because that's old Hollywood. <laughs> and so if we keep that going, that'd be awesome. But that's not enough to say, hey, let's give it a go. But if all those things align and it looks like there, you know, there might be a possibility, I'll do some serious analysis into it and take a look at it. When you took the big chair, I would assume you had a vision for the future of the restaurant, right? That you were like, with my unique skill set, with my vision, we can go from here to here. How do you evolve the brand to meet today's demands and still hold true to the customer base that feeds you? It goes back to what I was saying earlier about just staying true to who you've always been. Musos is not one of those concepts that's constantly changed through the decades. If it was, I might have a different outlook on this, but it's been a concept that has always stayed the same. We've always been steaks, comfort food, hearty stuff. No need to change that. And I think that you got to focus on that. What got you to 100 years? What got you to 95 years? And why make a left turn? If it's going good, stay on that road, but perfect it. And so instead of making a decision to do something different and doing it okay, 
stay on that same road and just keep perfecting what you've been doing for so long. And that's the approach that we've always taken here. And when I took over the operation in, in 2009, that was the approach that I wanted, that my family wanted, that the team wanted. It was kind of like a unanimous decision. Okay, let's focus on what we do really well and let's perfect it. And we did. And here we are at 103 and we're coming off of our best year ever in 2019 prior to COVID. And we're on par to do, you know, even more than that this year. So no complaints with it. What does growth look like? Every restaurateur on the planet wants to open a thousand restaurants, right? What is your vision? What does growth look like for you, for the brand? Is it multiple locations? Is it just building out what you currently have? We have built out what we currently have. I think we're sort of maxed on our growth here at Musos. And so the next step would be looking elsewhere. And I know that is on the family's radar. It's one of those things I've negotiated multiple leases in various locations for Musos. Things just didn't line up, whether it's the economics or the floor plan, it just didn't line up. We're not going to force something. Again, it's kind of one of those things where you're 103 years old. What's waiting a couple more years for another unit? And we don't have that ambition to go and put out 10 musos in five years or nothing like that. It's a very slow measured process with us. We're very deliberate in everything we do. And so it's kind of one of those things where you wait for the right location, 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 location. You wait for that right location, the economics work, go for it. And we've come close, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. But we do have ambitions for another missiles. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I am a big believer in... Once you've figured out your concept and you're invested in that concept, stick with it. Listen to your customer base. I think that's invaluable. Hold your team in high regard. They are everything. We as restaurant owners, we can try to be everywhere at once. We can try to talk to everybody. It ain't going to work. And so empower your team to be that ambassador of what your concept is, what your values are. Empower them. That takes a little bit of time to get them to that point. It takes a little time for them to get to the point where you feel comfortable and sort of being a little bit hands off and letting them handle some of that communique a little bit and being that ambassador for yourself, and especially in family businesses, have a collaborative effort with the ownership. So if you're in a multi-ownership kind of a concept, collaboration really truly is everything. And that's even more important in family businesses where there's some other dynamics that can get in the way of progress and success. And so just be open book and communicate the heck out of everybody. That's Marcus Cheveria. For more on Musso and Frank Grill, visit MussoandFrank.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.